Welcome to The Lead, the New Lines Magazine podcast. I'm Faisal Yafai, and this is the podcast where we delve into the biggest ideas, events, and personalities from around the world. Since the October 7th attacks towards the latter end of last year, the international media ecosystem has been in overdrive. International journalists have embedded with the Israeli military. Gazan journalists have risked and often lost their lives trying to bring the story from inside Gaza. And think pieces on the conflict have dominated the opinion pages of major newspapers. But as the world's attention focuses on this conflict in a small strip of land in the eastern Mediterranean, it moves away from others. Wars rumble on in Ukraine, in Myanmar, in Sudan, in Syria, in Mali, and in many other places besides. But it seems public attention can only focus on one or two at a time. The victims of yesterday's wars are forgotten. Will the conflict in Gaza also become a yesterday conflict once a newer, fresher conflict inevitably presents itself to the world's attention? With me today to discuss the challenges of reporting on long-running conflicts are two journalists who have reported their fair share of yesterday's wars, Nabih Boulos and Bell True. Nabih is the LA Times' Middle East bureau chief and covered the battle to retake Iraq from ISIS, as well as a host of other conflicts, including Libya, Yemen, and also Ukraine. Bell is the chief international correspondent for The Independent and has reported on numerous conflicts from South Sudan to Yemen to Ukraine. Bell, Nabih, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. So I want to start with trying to get an understanding of how it feels to cover a long-running conflict. What do those first intense days of a conflict feel like compared with six months or a year in? Uh, Bell, perhaps you can start with you. If you want to tell us your experience of reporting on the war in Ukraine. Yeah, so those first few days, I mean, usually it starts with a breaking news piece of information, obviously. For example, Russia crossing over into into Ukraine. And the sort of worst nightmare scenario that you've been perhaps following for several weeks happening. And that, for journalists, usually means a mad scramble to get there. This, with Ukraine, was in the aftermath of the COVID pandemic. So it made it more complicated trying to actually get somewhere quickly. Um, And we'd had this several months in the lead up to the invasion where people had been, you know, deciding whether it was going to happen or not. There'd been millions of op-eds. There'd been so much ink spilled over this question that we'd almost got to the point where we just couldn't imagine that it would happen. So when it did, there's always that moment of like, you know, shock where you just think, you know, what's going to happen to, how is this going to impact the world? But for me personally, it involved trying to get from Beirut where I was living to the border with Poland and you know, you're going against the tide as as a journalist. I mean, I remember those scenes at the border with 65 kilometers worth of cars uh, stretching all the way um, from the border out. And, you know, just, I actually had to hitchhike my way to Lviv because everyone else, and people were queuing for days and were coming out of this darkness in the snowy nights with their belongings and their desperation. It was, you know, sort of hammered home, the gravity of what had happened and those Mm. first few months where you end up just dropping everything to cover it feel like a blur and the entire it feels like the center of the universe is angled on it um but at the same time you know if you've covered conflict before that the world's focus is fickle and there will be a point where those cameras shift when spotlight shifts and there's always i always feel now I guess maybe you can call me jaded. I always worry because I know that at that moment, people are desperate for coverage because they feel like it almost saved lives. I I don't want to 
you know, put journalism on a pedestal like that. But I know that at some point there is going to be almost what feels like a betrayal when the world does move on. And as a journalist, he becomes obviously invested and cares and talks to people and makes friendships with people. And, you know, when you're on a front line with people, you, you almost feel like it is a betrayal. So, yeah, the first bit of those of the war is always this mad rush and this intense feeling and the world just focusing in on that one moment. Mm. Nabih, you must have experienced this a lot, this idea that Bell was talking about where you see it as the center of the universe and then the world moves on, even you move on, you move on to a different conflict zone or a different story. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I've been very peripatetic when it comes to various conflicts. So I've had, I mean, I started off, um, you know, with the Syria conflict. That was the first conflict that I covered in my journalism career before moving on to Iraq. And of course, that was a bit different because the denouement there was sort of the defeat of ISIS. So that was, you know, a fairly good ending to sort of shift attention. And I can understand a lot of attention there. But Syria, for example, was a conflict that never really ended. And the interest, you know, just really waned year after year. Ukraine, same thing to an extent where, I mean, I should say that the interest in Ukraine, I think, stayed at a far higher level than Syria did. I should say that's true. But then again, it is also worth saying that Ukraine is now in its third year, so it's a bit different. Mm. At the same time, this is the way these things go. The fact is that, you know, really no one can sustain that kind of attention for a long period of time. We tried. I mean, I managed to cover Ukraine for quite some time. I covered Iraq for years, Syria as well. And I focused very much on those conflicts where they became sort of my specialty, I could say. And the fact is that, no, uh, you know, people's attention you know, eventually wanders. There's always another conflict. And there's also another point, which is to, you know, I mean, which is important to say, which is that a lot of these conflicts, frankly, involve, uh, you know, the global south, or if you want me to say it in a blunter fashion, brown people. <laughs> okay. And those conflicts tend to have less, uh, far less attention. Yeah. And a great example of this is Yemen. I mean, Yemen, you know, if you can imagine sort of an evisceration of an already eviscerated nation, then that is the Yemen war. And attention there is so limited and it really always was limited and continues to be so yeah it kind so of cycles it in is, and out like when the suddenly there's this interest in the houthis and then there's the spotlight and then it just vanishes yeah and the fact is that it cycles uh, i mean insofar that it does cycle it does so only because for example you know some un person said that this is the worst famine they've ever seen or the worst crisis that they've ever had you know or the houthis sort of you know make some problems on the red sea uh, I mean, that's basically it, but there really is no sustained attention. And even if there is more importantly, and this is worth saying, the sort of attention that it gets won't ever truly capture the various nuances that are happening. Because the fact is, and this is you know, you know the case for a lot of the wars that I cover, um, explaining the context and explaining the background will often take half of the article. And the fact is that it's hard to incorporate a history lesson every time you write something yeah, about this stuff. Yeah. I mean, did you feel that, Bell? Because we, even though the, the Ukraine conflict was long running, because it, it didn't start uh, two years ago, but when you got to it and there was this so much attention on it, did you feel that you had to retell some of that history almost every time that you're speaking about it or writing about it? With Ukraine, it was a bit easier in the sense that you have an enemy that people understand Um, an enemy, I mean, as in of the Ukrainian military, Russia, and you have a fairly simple action, which is an invasion. And the history, a lot of people will maybe have some sort of muscle memory about. 
um, you're talking about the Soviet Union, Russia and Ukraine. So you do have to have some context. But as Navi is saying, you know, Yemen, I mean, people, it's so, it, it is far more complicated and people don't have necessarily that kind of history in their head. And they have short attention spans and it's very difficult to get that into a news article. And as Nabi says, like basically two thirds of the news article ends up being trying to explain how we got here in a way that's actually correct. And a lot of people get it wrong with Yemen. Um, and you know, I saw this in Libya because I spent a lot of time in Libya, for example. And it got to the point where, I mean, when you have three governments who all claim, you know, uh, legitimacy simultaneously and then you have other currents happening like ethnic groups or tribal groups that are slightly separate but sort of related and then you know as we saw a few years ago you end up having international interference so you've got at one point Russia was getting involved Turkey was getting involved um, you know Hifta was marching on Tripoli at that point just trying to explain who the actual actors are involved is a paragraph in itself so it does make it more complicated. With Ukraine, it was it was more simpler. But I, I do remember as I crossed into Ukraine, and I actually, it's, it's interesting that we're having this conversation today because I was coming across some messages that I'd written at the time where I actually expressed concern that while the whole world felt like it was pivoted around Ukraine at that moment, my concern is when that interest will, will fade and what that means for people on the ground. Because, you know, very often global interest can, can, can save lives or, or change the occurrences that are happening on the ground, particularly in Ukraine in terms of military support, for example, as we're seeing now with, with the US, you know, not wanting to, to, to release funds, for example. What do you think, this is for Bell, but we'll come back to Nabi Hamid, what, what do you think the public understands by this reporting? Like, let's start with the Ukraine war. What do you think the public believes is the reason to be informed of these subjects? I think that's a fascinating question and it's one I'm actually asking myself a lot when I'm trying to work out how to do a good service of journalism if that mm. makes sense it's yeah. also something that I'm I've also been thinking about this quite deeply recently because I've become um as I've become an accidental war correspondent um not that I like that phrase I I I also wonder whether we're not feeding the wrong machine as well in our types of reporting and I'm specifically talking about, you know, very sort of front-loading violence versus other forms of reporting. But to answer your question, I think, first of all, most of the articles that are most read, and I'm talking about Western publications here, and I think it's important to distinguish between different kinds of news organisations as well. And so I'm right. talking about Western publications that I work for. Yeah, that's important that's to a, say. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, very fair to yeah, say. Yeah, exactly. I think Navi would agree with that. Um, is people care about what's happening in their own lives right, quite frankly, which I guess is fair enough. Um, and so for them, they will want to know, um, first of all, they probably want to know what this big event is. But second of all, I want to know how this impacts them. Yeah. I don't think that we necessarily need to always feed that because I do believe that journalists, you know, we have this immense power in many ways. And I think it's really important to show all sides of a conflict. And especially with war, it's important to show the humanitarian side and the impacts on civilians. Because I think the most important thing that we can do is show people just how devastating war is so that it's not just turned into what's essentially, you know, a game of, you know, armies um, and the playground of the battlefield. 
but yeah, people want to know how this is going to impact them. And that's, and that is always the way that an article, if it's looking from a Western media perspective, for example, you know, they will front load that. So there will be discussions about, you know, who supports which side and what that might mean for people living in, for example, the UK, as I work for a UK publication, like rise in cost of living. Yeah. Um, and that's why I say it's important to say like what type of media, because of course, you know, as we're seeing at the moment with the conflict in, between you know, in, in Israel-Palestine, you know, Al Jazeera Arabic, for example, is an, is has become a really important place for people in the region to find out what's happening in much more incremental detail on the ground in Gaza than airtime gives from, from other publications. But I think people want to know and they want to know how it's going to impact them and they want to know, um, you know, what it's like sometimes just literally what it looks like what it feels like what it smells like what 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 it what it really experiences but isn't because the the reporting that both of you have done you you are both reporting for uh, an american audience or a british audience both of those countries are very heavily involved in all the wars that we've mentioned ukraine gaza and so on in some ways you're not merely telling the audience what is happening you're also giving them information that allows them to interpret what the politicians are then going to ask of them. Essentially, they, the, the government is going to ask them to consent to their money being sent abroad, their troops being sent abroad, and so on. And you're giving them necessary information in order to understand that. Yeah, I think you know we have to show what the situation is on the ground. And I think it's really important to expose what, for my case, um, what the British government decisions mean. You know, what, mm. what does it look like? And I, I think, um, you know, because we that that's our, our job, right? Is to hold truth, uh, hold power to account. So yeah, I think it's really important to say, is I see my role as bringing whatever's happening right in front of my eyes into the living rooms of everyone who's either reading or, or watching this. I think that's really important. And for me personally, with conflict, that means the devastating impact on civilians. I'm trying to like reach through that camera lens or reach through that page with the words on it to the person in the living room to try and explain to them what it's, what's going on. That's why, just circling back to what you we were saying before, even if a situation is super complicated, it's a journalist's job to try and explain that in a, in a way that means that it's relevant and understandable to the audience, which can be really hard when you have multiple different governments and you know complicated dynamics in terms of ethnic groups or tribal groups but i think the most important thing is that we reach through those lens we reach through those pages either print or online and and we talk to the people in the living room about what's happening that's what i think is is our role do you think nabih that you put to one side as much of the political noise as you can and you just focus on what is right in front of you to tell that story well, so my main consideration really is that, you know, governments will always, I believe, lie when it comes to war. And the fact is that I want people to really understand what it means when a politician or a soldier says the phrase surgical strike. I want them to understand what it means when they're going into a country or establishing a no-fly zone. The thing that infuriates me the most, and, and probably the main reason why I still insist on, uh, on doing war reporting, as opposed to doing food videos, which is my first love, um, is because the fact is I sort of, you know, watched on the side as Iraq was happening, as the, as the Iraq invasion in 2003 was happening. And I have to admit to you, I was really naive. I believed, actually, that journalists at the time, uh, you know, who were covering this for, 
you know, for U.S. and UK publications, had some deep intelligence and were knowledgeable, etc. Yeah, granted, I, I I realized the injustice of it. I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm an Arab. I was living in Jordan at the time, so of course I was, you know, very much against the invasion. But I believed, nevertheless, that this was based on some truth, right? Some idea. And then, of course, to find that it was based on nonsense and lies, that really is what pushed me to sort of get involved in the situation in Syria and report on it there. And that has been sort of my, I guess, um, idea of or, or, or the central ethos of my reporting since then, which is basically, you know, my belief very much is that what is often said about war is, is really bullshit. And the fact is that it's our job to cut through that nonsense, cut through that noise, whether it's from politicians, officials, soldiers, whoever, right? And as Bell said, the key point is to show what it means when you say that you've sent in a surgical strike on an area which is heavily populated. Like, what does that actually mean, right? How many people will, you know, will die? And, you know, my main issue really in all this is to show the consequences of what people, uh, you know, believe their governments or their armies are doing. I want them to see that and feel that and understand that they are eventually culpable for it. Because when people say, oh, why do they hate us, right? I want them to know why. How do you feel when you conceptualize the person at the other end uh, of the TV screen or uh, computer screen or iPhone 6 or whatever it is? Like when you think about that person, do you think that you are speaking directly to them? Because I wonder to some degree if maybe it's a little bit old fashioned to imagine that the person on the other side is really taking in what you're saying. They're taking in what you're saying in the context of YouTube videos and TikTok videos and something on Instagram and someone sent them a link. And there's so much noise, even at the individual level, that I wonder how much the reporting can cut through. Bell, let's start with you. Yeah, I mean, this is something that we are having to calibrate now because people's attention spans are so short. I mean, it was I, it was quite interesting recently. I, I had to give a TED talk recently and it's 14 minutes long. I remember back in the day when TED first became a big thing. I remember thinking that 14 minutes was so short and that was so revolutionary to have a whole lecture in 14 minutes. Now, most people are looking at videos that are 30 seconds long and they're looking they're, they're consuming five different things at the same time. But, you know, I think you've still got to try. Right. And there are ways to be able to capture that. And that is really the goal is to think about new ways to engage with audiences but you think about when you are thinking sorry to drop but when you're thinking about the person at the other side do you think about it like that like you think they're kind of lost in a fog of noise and it's your job to try to be as clear as possible yeah i mean that's probably horribly naive but say for example the war in gaza right now you know i think it's extremely important for journalists to lay out that context that Nabi was explaining to really explain what is happening in the detail needed in a way that's that's easily consumable because people need to know. And and in many cases, knowledge is is life-saving, right? Because if people are going to make decisions and, you know, back military offensives or um, actions from our government, in, in different conflicts, they need to know what the consequences are of that. So, but yes. But why, I mean, why do they need to know? This is one of the questions I wanted to reach for. Why do they need to know? They won't be fighting those wars. Yes, but they will be supporting. They, they, have, they can hold governments to account, for example. They need to know where taxpayers' money is going. 
I think, I mean, take the 2003 um, invasion of, of, of Iraq that Nabi was talking about. I mean, yes, there were, there, there were huge protests against that in the UK. It still went ahead, but at least people, there was a, enough political pressure, I think, um, about that. I think, I mean, look, I, journalists are not um, activists in, in, a, in a traditional sense, and I don't think that helps, but I, I do believe 100% that people need to have knowledge to do what they will with it, but they have to know. And I think if if you don't know what's happening, I mean, Gaza is actually a really important example of this because foreign correspondents are not allowed into Gaza right now unless they're on controlled military invades with the Israeli military. Palestinian, our brave Palestinian colleagues right now are on the ground under unimaginably difficult situations trying to report. Um, but, you know, try it's the fact that we cannot be on the ground makes it harder for, for us to report. And I think now more than ever, because that information needs to get out of Gaza, right? Because people need to know what's happening because of the devastation that's happening there. I just think if we don't believe that knowledge is important for people to receive, then we probably shouldn't be doing journalism, basically. Nabih, what do you think about that? Because I, when you say we have to hold them, it allows the public to hold their politicians to account. There hasn't been an election in the UK or in the US since the Ukraine war started and since the Gaza war started. So what is the point of this information? Well, I think more importantly that even the, if they did protest, it won't matter. I mean, look at the situation now with the Biden administration, where clearly a large portion of the U.S. public wants a ceasefire. It won't matter. And, and, and indeed, I also participated in those protests in 2003. And, you know, unpopular opinion, but I do not think that the people on the streets protesting actually matters. And, you know, add to that, even more importantly, I would say, I cannot write with someone in mind. I... And, and this was the case also when I was a full-time violinist. I don't play the violin and I don't, and I don't write an article for someone else. I do those things for me. Mm. Those are both self-indulgent activities. And I enjoy them as that. And if I can say this, you know, this is sort of like the central ethos of my thinking when it comes to these activities. Because they are, at the end of the day, you know, careers. And I like them and, and I love them and I enjoy them very much. But they are very much self-indulgent careers that are... I mean, I'll say another bad word on this podcast, right? They're as self-indulgent in many ways as masturbation. And I think it's always very sort of kind of strange when people say, oh, I do this for others. I do this to like, you know, you know, give voice to the voiceless or give truth, et cetera. I do these things because I think they're important to me and I want people to sort of share that knowledge, right? I'd like them to understand what is going on, but I can't write with an audience in mind because that's not the way I think. I'm too self-absorbed to do that. Right. I believe intrinsically that if I write it as best as I can in a way that would satisfy me or play that piece, if you will, in a way that would satisfy me, then I believe that my taste is you know, enough to sort of convince others to join in. That's why I do it, really. And also, I mean, of course, there is the element of this, which is that at the end of the day, people should know. I think knowledge is definitely important. I agree with Bell in that regard, which say that knowledge is important. What they do with that knowledge is their business. Right. But I do want people to know. And the great example, again, is the Gaza war. I definitely want Americans to know that, you know, it was happening right now is very much, you know, their fault, that they're responsible for this. I want them to understand that, you know, whatever happens on both sides, Americans are very much culpable and they will eventually pay the price for it. And I say this as an American as well. I don't want to be held accountable for the Biden administration's crimes, right, or, or ideas or decisions, right, for either side. 
But the fact of the matter is that we are. And so it's my job to make sure that knowledge is out. I want to talk about media fatigue and, you know, the impact of this constant stream of stories after over such a long period of time. But I, I want to think a little bit briefly about how, as journalists, we might contribute to this sense of forever wars. I mean, you talked at the beginning, Nabiya, about how, to some degree, you were very fortunate in covering the ISIS story because the ISIS story came to a conclusion, whereas most of the other stories, Libya, Iraq, these stories are continuing. They've never ended. Yeah. It, I mean, there certainly is an element of feeding the beast, and there certainly is an element of us well, maybe not me, perhaps, but a lot of people, I think, you know, a lot of other journalists have done the sort of thing where they do, you know, what you would call access journalism, and they sort of aggrandize a certain side. And we've seen this very much with the, you know, Israel, Hamas, Gaza situation, right? But with that being said, you know, what is the alternative? Is the alternative to, you know, to not know anything or to rely on, you know, sort of these, uh, I guess, you know, unreliable narrators, whether that's, you know, politicians or officials, right, rightful governments who are involved, or even for people on the ground as well. I mean, of course, you know, you want to have citizen journalists, you want to have people there, you want to have the social media uh, ecosystem are contributing to that situation, because it's a great way to get, you know, information on the ground. But you also, I believe, do need perspective from people, you know, like journalists, right, people who are, I suppose, you know, to an extent anyway, trained to provide this in a, an objective fashion, right? And I think it's important to have that input in there so you can have a complete picture. Because mm. the fact is, without us, yes, of course, you can perpetuate the forever war by, you know, buying into all these um, sort of matrices that exist, right? I mean, I, I mean, the whole notion of embedding, right? I mean, that's something that always sort of gives me pause, I have to say, and it still does. I mean, I do it. I think, you know, I mean, oftentimes, it's, it's the only way to get access. But at the same time, it you know, it has issues for me. I do have qualms about it. I wish we could return to the days of the Vietnam War where, you know, journalists weren't embedded. In many ways, that was the glorious thing about the Iraq, uh, you know, ISIS coverage then, because we could sort of go around to different units and just basically do what we wanted. Ukraine, to an extent, is the same way or was the same way. Now it's changed. Of course, it's not at all the same situation when it comes to Israel Gaza, where you cannot enter Gaza at all unless you have an IDF uh, embed. Uh, but let's talk about fatigue, media fatigue and, and Ukraine, because, of course, now you've covered this war for two years. Do you detect that there is fatigue on the part of the public? I mean, you can see it through. I, I mean, this is awful, but you can see it through engagement numbers, basically. Mm. And, and, I, and I hate to bring this up because I don't think we should um, be governed by numbers of people clicking on pages or whatever. And I think newsrooms started to prioritize that too much and now are shifting away from it actually like seeing you know what google analytics shows or whatever but if we just use that as a metric to show interaction there's less interest and this happens i mean i as i said at the beginning of the ukraine war i did have a moment where i thought you know because i was thinking about syria and i just thought god you know the whole world cares right now but how long is this going to last and I know that I was talking to Ukrainians who were also aware of that. Mm. And, the, and the Ukrainian politicians as well and the military officials who, who were aware that there was going to be a moment of fatigue, which is happening right now. And so they need to get as much engagement as they possibly can before that happens. As a journalist, it's something I struggle with because I feel, apart from anything, guilt, especially with Syria. Yeah. I, I mean, 
people will be hard pushed to know what's what's happening in Syria. Um, the other issue with Syria, and this is another issue with forever wars, is that access almost becomes quite difficult. And so it, it becomes very hard to tell the story. And also repetition. You end up telling the same story again and again. And I think the other issue that we have with fatigue isn't necessarily about timing, but it's about metrics reached, if that makes sense. So, for example, I remember during the coup in Egypt in 2013, we had various different massacres of the Muslim Brotherhood um, protesters in their camps by the Egyptian um, security forces. And the numbers just kept going up until we had the clearing of Rabah, where potentially as many as a thousand people were killed in a single day. Once you reach that height of numbers of people slaughtered, I think it was a few weeks later, there were 66 people killed in a protest, which would normally be a very high number of unarmed protesters to be killed, which would normally be a big news story. But because we'd already had a thousand, people are desensitized. So it's not just about length of time and and sort of what the, the world cares about. It's also that you end up having these, I don't know what the word is, but you reach these sort of points that mean that anything that comes later unless it's that bad yeah yeah but when, do, when do you, you sort of mean no absolutely but when you say that do you mean that the public responds to it like that or that your editors are responding to it like that i think both um i mean yeah very much both very much say. both yeah it, chicken it, and egg it changes the situation it just changes it i mean again these numbers become you know, it just becomes fantastical at some level, right? You just don't really think of it in, in, in real terms. It becomes a statistic. Again, not to quote Stalin, but the fact is one person is a tragedy, a million is a, is a stat, right? And that's the way it is. And we're seeing that. Right, with these things. Yeah, and we're seeing that in Gaza Sorry, right now. So, yeah, no, I mean, I agree with you, Nevi. Sorry to, to jump in, but, you know, we're seeing that in Gaza. Like, you know, people are talking, um, you know, the, the, the authorities on the ground in Gaza are saying that twenty seven over 27,500 people are, have been killed, that number is just unimaginable. What does that even mean? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like, like it means nothing to us sort of in a real term. It is a number, right? You can't even envision 27,500 people dead. Yeah. And then when it says 27,600, you know, 27,650, I mean, 50 people is to die in a single afternoon or to be, I mean, killed, sorry, not die. Killed is, is is, isn't. And by the way, when you see those, when you see bodies lined up, you get it. I mean, I, I remember in a mosque after the clearing of Rabah, seeing personally going through 250 bodies because I was trying to find an individual who I never did find again. You understand when you see it, but when it's just a number in a page, and that's where I think journalism comes in because I think, I personally think, and maybe I'm just um, really idealistic but uh, and a bit naive, but I personally think our responsibility is to make those stories relevant again and is to provide the human side, the humanity to that number and to make people understand. And because otherwise there's zero point us doing our job. Otherwise we're just fetishizing violence. Otherwise we're just there for the fun to, you know, show the entertainment of it. I think our job is to go in there and explain what 27,500 people means and the other aspects of it, not just the death toll, but every other side of the tragedy and to keep it relevant. And that's hard to do. And I personally feel immense guilt for, for Syria. I don't know how, you know, and I've, I don't know how to reframe the story. And it's something that maybe I should spend a bit more time thinking about, particularly the plight of Syrian refugees who aren't even in Syria, but are suffering. That is why there, it is important, because if people, you know, we talked earlier about, you know, was there any point us even talking about certain t- subjects? 
if you can humanize the plight of Syrian refugees, for example, in Lebanon, if you can zero in on a family, it does make a difference. In a small level, I've seen, you know, Syrian refugees be given resettlement and lives saved through shining a light on their story. It doesn't always work like that. I'm not claiming to be some, you know, whatever, Mother Teresa, but it does help sometimes. Yeah, and 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 I'll say this much that that yes, in the past that has indeed helped. And 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 the key point is, I have to say, is to go small when you are faced with something as unimaginable as twenty as twenty seven thousand people dead, and when you sort of are faced with something as enormous as a sort of seventy five year um, occupation, right? When, when we talk about the West Bank or what have you, right? Then you are, I think, forced to go really deep on a small portion of that because otherwise the enormity of those figures mean nothing to people and the only way to sort of bring it back or to bring it home to people i think is to focus on the smaller stories and i'll give you an example of this um you know i remember you know i wanted to talk about something about aleppo but this was back in the day and we had managed to get a rare government visa of course they were you know we had intelligence agents around all the time it was very annoying we could barely do anything but then i came upon this restaurant i remember and i was able to talk to this restaurant tour and and you know through that it was such an innocuous situation but through his story you could illustrate the hardships that have now befallen these people how he couldn't get gas how he couldn't get you know, supplies how his prices you know were never really up to sort of how much he could make profit, right? How basically he still had to turn people away because they would come in, right? They couldn't pay him, right? He had to give them some food, but then he couldn't give them too much food because he would lose all supplies he had. You had all these situations where you could, you know, illustrate the daily hardships. And that's really the key point for me, right? You know, what people don't understand, I think often about war and about conflict in general is how debilitating it is for you know a simple daily routine where a simple act of just filling up your car with gas or getting a glass of water really become impossibly hard. And that's what I like to show. That's, I think, the way or one way to bring it home. And you're right now. When it comes to the issue of Syrian refugees, we've really all been remiss at some level, or Syria in general, because the fact is there have been so many other wars. And it also should be said, access is so utterly dismal but at the same time, the story is also not stagnant. I wouldn't call it that way, but it certainly is repetitious. And there's not much to say because so little is being done. And that's also another problem. How do you, Bell, how do you manage your relationship with your editors? Because there, there must be quite a difference between what you're seeing on the ground, what you're experiencing day to day. And the BS says war is very, very difficult on a daily level. And you are living part of it, however, you know, however privileged any of us are. We're still living part of it on the ground. How do you manage that relationship when what seems to you so important in Kiev is very different, perhaps, to what the editors in London or New York think? I think that is a dance that all correspondents who operate on the ground have to manage. I think it's also difficult for people who are largely based in the mothership in London or LA or New York, whatever, to understand the difficulties of operating on the ground, the expectations, and also the dangers. The dangers of using certain language or framing a story in a particular way. And I think it's basically as, as a correspondent, you have to build a certain level of trust with your editors so that you can say, this is important, trust me, or this isn't important, trust me or please listen to me over this particular framing. And it's it's a trial and improvement situation, I, 
I'd like to say, but it's difficult because especially when you live it and you're on the ground a lot, like not just, you know, with Ukraine, I have largely gone into Ukraine for large stretches of time. Sometimes I'm there for two to three months, but I'm not living in Ukraine. In other conflicts, I was living there and living it. And, you know, for example, in Egypt, trying to explain to editors back in London the difficulty of being, you know, watched by the Makabarat all the time, right? And the sort of impact that a way that a story is framed might have on my sources is slightly difficult because it's such a fantastical existence to them. So it's a long process that requires getting the trust of the editors and trial and improvement and mistakes being made. But ultimately, there has to be a certain level of, um, God, this is going to sound a bit pompous, but maybe reverence given to people on the ground because really they're there, they can see it. But that also to say, sometimes you can be so close to it that you can't see it, like your nose is pressed up against an impressionist painting. And sometimes you do need someone to pull it out and be like, you know, actually this, you know, because sometimes you can you can get fatigued as a journalist on the ground, particularly when you see something happen again and again and again and again. You often sometimes it's helpful to have that editor who can say, yeah, but people back in the UK don't get it. We do need to give it a bigger picture. So yeah, it's a it's yeah. a dance yeah. basically. Yeah, I've had that situation too, where, for example, I've seen a story, and again, this has happened. I mean, I mean, this is like the tenth time or twentieth time it's happened, and an editor flags it to me, and I tell them, "Look, this is this is this is you know a biweekly occurrence. Like that's a Tuesday." Right. And they'll tell me, yes, but not for our readers back home. And so therefore, you occasionally do have to trot it out. And the opposite can be true as well, where you will sort of flag an event which you think is essential and, and someone might not agree with you. I will admit to you, that has happened less to me. I've had excellent luck with the Los Angeles Times in this regard. Indeed, you know, that's why I remain in the paper in the sense that they trust me, you know, completely with this stuff. And I do believe that people on the ground always have to have, you know, you know, not necessarily a reverence, but certainly, you know, they have, I guess, priority in their views over someone who is back in Los Angeles or back in London. Uh, with that being said, you know, as Bell said as well, it is important to have, I guess, a bigger picture there too. But I honestly do trust myself to be able to do that. And I obviously trust Bell to do it as well, um, you know, over someone in London. The only time where I do think their input really matters, to be honest with you, is when I am perhaps too nonchalant about an event and need them to remind me that this is still a big deal for someone back in LA. I wanted to end by talking about your own personal experiences in terms of empathy fatigue, but also perhaps if there have been times you wonder if the the risk is not worth it. I want to start with you, Nabia, because I know you've had um, an experience with the Beirut blast where you were personally um, injured in it, in it. And I wondered if you felt at certain points, maybe you felt that you were in danger or you thought, you know, this story just isn't worth my own safety. So, <laughs> you know, it's a great question. I've always, I've, I've long thought about this. And uh, the fact is, you know, I will say this sort of openly and directly. There is no story which is worth dying for. There is no story which is worth being injured for. That's just a fact. I say this, and I also will say that I have more often than not, you know, gone forward towards the war zone than gone back. And rare is the moment when I've had to pull back, right? Or, or uh, I, mean, I should say more accurately, I, I've often been told to go back by others as opposed to sort of, 
uh, having done that out of my own volition. So which is to say that I'm sort of grappling with those issues as we go along. But I do think it's important to say that, you know, the key point is that you should go back, right? I mean, I mean, you want to be able to tell the story yourself, right? You have gone in to get a story. The intention is not to become the story. And what I often hate about, you know, Western journalism, especially when it comes to sort of these countries like Iraq, Syria, etc., is that so often we become the story, right? Whether, you know, one of us gets injured or gets killed or what have you, right? It's all about, you know, what the correspondent has suffered. And frankly, we don't matter. We're not supposed to be there. In the ideal sense, you would, you know, merely be not a stenographer. That's the wrong way of looking at it. But you would be, let's say, a stenographer, not just of words, but emotions and setting and, and location, right? It's your job to sort of, you know, convey those things in the most accurate fashion, most objective fashion too, but also in the most accurate fashion. And, and those always, and those aren't always the same thing. And so with that being said, yes, you know, intellectually, I'll tell you no story is worth dying for or getting injured for. Emotionally, I have admittedly taken risks when I shouldn't have had to. And I've done that because I thought the story was important and I wanted it out. Bell, how do you feel about, I mean, from your perspective, you know, you're going in and out of these war zones. And even sometimes as you're talking about with Egypt, you're living there for an extended period of time. And no doubt, I mean, you have personal relationships with people, you have friendship groups and so on. How do you get to the point where you start to think, you know, this, this story isn't worth my safety? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I just want to say I was nodding as, as Nabi was talking there. Um, and I think... I think what's important is that, yes, no story is worth um, being killed or injured for. And I think it is important not to, sometimes it's inevitable, but it's important to try not to make yourself the story. Um, because actually, especially when it comes to like, you know, I went to a front line and I got shelled and came home. That doesn't really do that much more than visually visualizing the dictionary definition of a conflict, right? Like you go to a front line and they're shelling. Um, so I think you've always, yeah, exactly. yeah, it's like, well, yeah, you went to a front line and you got shouted to me. Um, that's not, I'm not de denigrating anyone, but I just think it's important that that, because that can very often be very attractive uh, as a story. And I think it doesn't really tell the true story of war. Um, I think I, and the other issue that I wanted to say as well is that w when you're operating in a conflict zone, you're never on your own. You don't, it's not like I get a car and then just drive to like the front lines in Donbass and walk around. You know, I have people in the car with me and I have a responsibility for their lives as well um, if they're on my team. And I think that's really important as well to take that into account because we can't operate as islands. And so if I decide to take a risk, there's gonna be someone else there with me and I need to be responsible for them because they will often have a lot more at stake. Um, and also a lot of the people that I work with, I'm using Ukraine as an example, they work with other correspondents and their lives are on the line and their families are under threat and, you know, have to think about their mental health as well. So I think often I have to also think in the aggregate, like, is this worth it for everyone, not just for me and my life and my safety and my emotional health? And I think sometimes it doesn't feel like it's worth it. Sorry, just, you know, you mentioned Egypt there, for example. I mean, I spent seven years there. I invested time there. I have, um, you know, family there. And one morning I got, you know, a threatened with a military trial and terrorism um, charges and put on a plane and I can't go back. And that felt like a whole, like I lost a limb. Um, and so sometimes it does feel like, you know, maybe if I just pulled back a little bit earlier, that wouldn't be the case. Um, so, and, and it can really impact your mental health as well. And I think as Nabi was saying, 
we need to, the key is to keep doing good reporting, right? That's the ultimate goal to keep doing good, responsible, compassionate, truthful, positive reporting. And so you need to be able to sustain that as long as you possibly can. And so that means also managing your mental and physical uh, safety and health and the mental and physical health of everyone that works around you. Well, so, I mean, the problem is also, and I think Bell touched on this, is that so often, right, war journalism tends to become a matter of, look, I went here, look how cool I am, I came back, right? And this was especially the case for a while in Syria, right? It really became the case in Ukraine, where you have people who really had no business being on the front line, were sort of running towards it, right? And, you know, the point is not to become a spectacle, right? The point is not that this isn't, this isn't a joyride. This isn't a way to get your boom, boom fix. And it tends to be the way that people do get that for a lot of them, right? And, and I'm always very wary of that sort of thing. And that's why I... You know, when I do approach a war zone, right, if I work as part of a team, right, I will go only so far with them. And then if it is something that requires a little bit more, right, I will, frankly, you know, quite often actually ask them to hang back. An example of this was in Mahmoud, where we were sort of on the verge of going in. And I remember, you know, my translator at the time, I, I just, you know, turned to him and said, look, this is going to be me on my own. I, I can't have you with me. It's too risky. It's not your job. Um, you didn't sign up for it. And I'm happy to have you hang back. And he did. And we went and we spent the night there and that was fine. And we were lucky enough to get back out safely. And I was happy to do it. But I wasn't happy to take responsibility for his life or his safety. Nabiyah, Bell, thank you very much. Thank you for having us on the program. Thank you for having us. This has been The Lead from New Lines magazine. You can read Nabiyah Bulos's work in the LA Times or on Twitter at Nabiyah Bulos. You'll find Bell True at The Independent or on Twitter at Beltrue. This week's episode was produced by Finbar Anderson and hosted by me, Faisal Yafai. For more like this, subscribe to The Lead on your favorite podcast app or visit our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us. <laughs>